Well, hello and welcome to Rock is Bacchus. Um, first off, I'd like to say hello, Mom. Mom's finally uh, back in the cloud. She can find this uh, podcast now. So I definitely have at least one loyal listener. Um, and today I'm more than pleased to present one of my favorite people, uh, Lynette Montario. Montario. I just screwed that up tonight, Lynette. She's here today. She is a uh, multifaceted and talented, talented uh, psychologist, author, mother, mindfulness instructor, gardener, Buddhist, serial hugger, um, among many other things. And I'm very pleased to call her a friend. And I unfortunately don't get to see her often enough. So over to you, Lynette. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much. You're not the first person to screw up that last name, but you, you made a good effort, which is why I love you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm really honored to be here and very, very honored to be considered your friend and to call you my friend, too. And I don't bug you often enough, um, so we'll change that after this podcast if you're still talking to me. <laughs> well, if I'm still talking to you, I'm sure I will be. Um, do you remember the first time we met? You'll have to repeat that. Do you remember the first time uh, we met? Oh, my gosh. Um, you're, you're, you're reviving a trauma memory there. Um, <laughs> I, do rem- I don't remember the first time we met because you were terrifying. Um, but I do remember a couple of times when um, uh, we had some very heated conversations around certain things, and I knew it was better to back off than to um, have you go ballistic on me. <laughs> really? What was that? I, you know, again, all I remember is sitting in my office, and I think I brought up something about ethics and, um, you know, the British ethics of killing and the mindfulness thing and all of this stuff, and and um, you gave me the Steve look, <laughs> and which is kind of like, you know, radiation that melts you down into a little puddle. And I remember thinking, okay, this is not a guy to mess with unless you come fully armed. <laughs> Well, I remember it somewhat differently. I remember uh, when I first took the mindfulness class and we were being introduced and you tried to hug me and I said... Oh, I remember that. (laughs) And I haven't been successful in hugging you since. This is awful. You've been very successful. I remember you broke me down. The look on your face when I said I don't hug people, uh, strangers, and you you looked so taken aback at the time. I felt sort of bad. But then over the period of the eight to ten weeks I was coming there uh, for the mindfulness training... You yeah. you slowly you invaded my space. You would touch my shoulder, <gasps> and eventually you 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 got in there so close that a hug was unavoidable, and you become one of the people, one of the ten people that I actually hug on at any time. I, I'm impressed. I'm I'm very touched. I do remember that. And looking back now, you know, I probably should have asked more permission. And, um, and respected your space because you might have had grounds to report me to the college. <laughs> uh, there is no grounds there. Um, so what do you want to talk about today then? Well, you know, we've covered a whole lot of stuff in our time together and we've kind of uh, challenged each other uh, to, you know, to at least I, I, you have challenged me to, to rethink some of my concepts about um, psychology and, and, uh, and, you know, particularly uh, working in the military, uh, serving as a psychologist, uh, civilian in, in, in the military. Um, one of the things that are coming up right now in my private practice, uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, a lot of work, continuing to do a lot of work in, in clinical work with the, with the military, and there's a whole lot of stuff coming up around what we call sanctuary trauma. 
I, I don't. I know this isn't specifically what we had talked about that we might talk about, but that might be a good place to start. You know, um, it, there's a lot of it that happens, and it's not gender specific. You know, there's a uh, your your very first uh, podcast. I think the gentleman raised the issue of. You know, it's not what you're asked to do. It's not the aftermath of what you're asked to do. It's whether or not you get the support of what happens after all of it. And that really struck me when he raised that. Uh, I'm not quoting him totally accurately, I don't think. But so it raises this issue of sanctuary trauma, what it is and what happens and how widespread it is. Well, I would suspect that it's fairly widespread from the brief conversations I've had with people. And it a lot of it has to do with with not dealing so much with the chain of command, but with uh, dealing with veterans' affairs and trying to get to uh, um, benefits that they're owed or trying to yeah. feel they're owed. And it's fighting that uh, that bureaucracy that seems to be part and parcel of sanctuary trauma, which leads to, I guess, OSI. I would be correct, would I? Um, yeah, I think it's twofold. I think uh, the first part in terms of sanctuary trauma is is more the fact that, you know, when you expect to have backup from the people who are supposed to protect you, um, you know, protect you, <clears throat> sorry, protect you by way of decisions that they make or honoring the decisions you have to make when you're um, in CAF, when you're, you know, a serving member. Um, I think that comes down very much to leaving people very vulnerable because, you know, uh, as they have said to me in, in sessions, you know, they put everything into their career. They put everything into a particular exercise or deployment. And then to have, you know, the backup hands drop them is very painful because the whole um, the whole motivation, the, the whole message of being within the military is that everyone has everyone else's back. And to have that fundamental ethic violated is very painful. Well, and because you add the, you know, the, the, the actual traumatic stuff, the PTSD stuff on top of that, it becomes a really complicated thing to deal with. Um, and then you extend it down into, into that when they have to release. You know, that transition is painful enough. And there's so much grief involved with losing your lifetime profession. You know, because no one goes into the military you know, um, uh, figuring, well, you know, well, some people do, I suppose. I mean, you know, well, I'll stay a couple of years, you know, I'll, I'll you know, make my mark and then I'll leave. Um, most people I know have gone in as a lifetime career. And when injury and illness and, you know, related to, to the work that they do um, takes them away from that lifetime commitment, um, there's a lot of grief that, grieving that has to be, that, goes, that they go through. But that's complicated when you look at the whole paperwork and the bureaucratic stuff you have to go through, and it's so cold, you know, because well, it's, it's meant to it's be. It's part, part of the machine, I mean. Absolutely, yeah. It's a data-gathering machine. You know, they got to collect the data, put it through the hopper, and see what comes out the other end, and, you know, um, People get something like 180 bucks a month for, you know, an injury they sustained on deployment. I mean, that's a slap in the face in many ways. Or they lose a limb and collect $100,000 or something. Yeah. And uh, and then even beyond that, you know, um, 
releases when releases happen in in you know you I don't know if you you and I kind of remember our youth, but you know when it happens before your middle age because of injury because of significant injury, particularly PTSD, transition into civilian life is not easy, and um, because you're trying to do too much at the same time, they're trying to grieve plus figure out a new profession plus think about maybe they need to go back to school to college or university. Um, this is just all too much to try and deal with in the release period. Well, especially if you're a 21-year-old. Yeah. 21-year-old soldier. And I, I would include police officers in, in uh, this as well. I think there's a similar... Oh, absolutely. A similar... Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, it's not that you're more, uh, you know, you're more flexible or should be more flexible at 21 than at 31. I mean, I have a number of clients who are, tra- you know, releasing and transitioning to civilian life. say that there's a sacred trust owed to uh you know first line uh, uh military and police officers that's been broken in Canada or or how 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 do you view it, view the sacred trust thought thinking well i mean is there a trust that's been broken absolutely um at the same time you know um what's missing in keeping the trust is an understanding the psychology of what people are going through when they lose something that they've invested their life into being. It won't matter. It doesn't matter if you're in the military. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a factory worker. It doesn't matter if you're um, a healthcare professional. Anyone losing what they had believed was going to be their entire life's commitment is going to be in shock. Well, you look at guys like uh, like uh, Derek and Royce, who I interviewed earlier on, and there's yeah. definitely that that anger of being let down by the system. And and and, and for for me personally, I I got in with no expectation of uh, of anything from from my service other than a paycheck and hopefully some adventure and maybe getting to go to war, um, which fortunately I did. Which, which is some of those non-military people who might be listening, um, wanting to go to war is is part and parcel of the of the majority of thinking in the military because yeah. you're training for the big game and not going to the big game is just yeah. a waste of your twenty twenty five years. Yeah, which is which is really strange, but it but it brings me to to another another question we were talking about earlier. Um, the the system letting you down by not protecting you, and in this case, uh, the complaints of many of the women in the uh, military about uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault in particular, mm-hmm. and uh, being being covered up. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Does it tie in with the uh, sanctuary trauma? 
Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, not only do you have a complication. I, I want to be careful, too, you know, because we don't hear a lot about men who go through sexual assault as well. Um, and it's, it's a huge silent area in, in any organization, police, military, you know, first responders. Um, and, and I just want to, I want to give that a bit of voice for one second here and just say, you know, Please do. yes, the majority that we're hearing about are women, but let's not forget that there are also men who have been abused, but who for their own, like we just talked about earlier, you know, the two very different cultures of male and female. And for their own reasons and their own culture, are not able to have a voice. Well, do you think that's because of? Uh, I mean, sexual assault on either on either sex is going to be um, re- repugnant to most people. But do you yeah. think for for males it might be? I don't want to say more difficult, but there's more of a barrier for coming forth because you're a man and you're you're the essence of your manhood is now violated? Well, when you think about it, and, and, I, and I do want to come back to the issue of, the, of women and, and sexual assault in the military. I'm not avoiding it. Um, uh, but you've kind of inspired me and given me the courage to open my mouth around that, the other part, too. right? But when you think about it, you know, um, sexual orientation in the military is such a recent thing. You know, it's openly discussed. It's such a recent thing. Yes. Um, sexual orientation and, you know, uh, I know a lot of my clients get really upset when they see my Zoom handle and it says she, her, and they get really upset about that. Um, and that's fine. We can work that through. Right. Even I've had trouble accepting, you know, putting in things like gender, gender pronouns and gender preference, preferred pronouns and things like that. So if, you know, if I'm having trouble with that, I can imagine how much trouble so many other people are having, because this is all new for us. It's a whole new way of having to conceptualize the world. Well, it's something that seems to have come upon us quickly. Like uh, um, it's, it's in the LGBTQ community. It's been, you know, accepted for, for some time, but um it's only for us to have come out of the closet to to uh, um, yeah. accept it and wrap our minds around it. Like I had a uh, great conversation with uh, my niece, who's a pansexual and uh, um, a lesbian, uh, who, who's strictly lesbian, and uh, they the 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 my niece is quite quite ready to accept and whatever, however you want to be addressed, they them. Yeah. There's no issues, but both myself and Karen being older, it was harder for us to get our minds wrapped around it. But in the end, you know, it's just agreed yeah. where, what, why is it hurting anybody? It's not hurting anybody. So why not address them as they want to be addressed? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, I get upset when people call me Lynn. Don't you ever dare call me Lynn. Uh, you know, I, I just see red and I don't know why it's just, that's just the way I am. Um, that's such a minor thing compared to someone who wants to be acknowledged for who they are and also is willing to run the risk that if I'm acknowledged that way, I'm exposing myself. There is no danger in me exposing myself by how I want to be addressed in my first name. But for someone else in terms of gender identity and, and solidifying that for themselves, you know, there has been a huge history of risk. And we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, coming back to that, uh, coming back to, I, I can see this is a rabbit hole we're going to go down, and I, <laughs> I want to make sure we, we come back to the sexual assault yeah. um, issues. 
um, you know, enfolded in with that as a, a larger umbrella around, you know, um, the the disbelief uh, that the women I'm I'm working with have experienced when people say, well, what took you so long to say this? You know, what do you mean there's been a whole history? What do you mean there's been, you know, um, attempted assault on you since the day you joined the military? Um, and, and we have to recognize that uh, for women uh, coming out in terms of, and, and, and you know, um, risking their safety in terms of, of asking for help or, or, or reporting sexual abuse, there's so much more to lose. What do you mean there's so much more to lose? What, what, uh... Well, first of all, um, there's a, they're rarely believed. Right. Um, most women, and I know certainly from, you know, uh, speaking to, to women who have called the police, uh, you know, the standard uh, line used to be, I don't know if it still is, you know, well, what did you do to upset him? How did you, how did you lead them on? Right. You know, the interrogations around rape, um, uh, investigations around rape uh, cases. And this is something interesting. Um, I gave a talk, a quick sidebar, I gave a talk on, um, you know, the stress reaction um, uh, that was related to PTSD. And one of the uh, female sergeants came up to me after the, this was at the police service, and one of the female sergeants came up to me after, and she said, you know, Given what you're saying about how the frontal lobe goes offline um, when someone is is uh, in a high stress situation and is is assaulted, we shouldn't be interviewing rape victims right after it. We, you know, they, they, right after in the hospital or things like that. And I said, yeah, I don't know why no one's ever thought of that. But if your frontal lobe is offline, it takes a while for it to come back online. And what's your frontal lobe lobe responsible for? Well, the frontal lobe is responsible for a whole lot of things in terms of logical thinking, responding, communication, um, coherence, right? Um, if I start to get really anxious right now, I'm not going to make any sense, right? Um, remember also that with assault, you know, the amygdala and the hippocampus are involved, right? You know about that, right? You yeah, haven't, for- but for you those, haven't forgotten your biology. But those that, are, that aren't familiar with it... Um, oh. You know, imagine that, well, as you know, I mean, the hippocampus is a, it's like a, it's like a, a you know, uh, a, an, an immune assistant who doesn't believe in filing things by, by alphabetically or by time. Right? right. So it just kind of throws all the memories into this bucket. So memories are by nature already kind of befuddled. You throw stress on top of that, you, you're not going to get sequential memory. Well, and there's no, I guess there's no such thing as true memory. Everything that happens to you is a memory of a memory. I mean, yeah, but then look at what the interrogations are like, you know, so what happened then? So you walked into the bar, well, what happened then? Well, how could he have, you know, touched you in the bar if what you're saying is that, you know, you met him outside and he left? Um, you know, so in under traumatic situations, and this, this applies for any trauma, sequencing the events is really challenging. And that leads to self-doubt. It leads to vulnerability when you can't. I mean, again, you know, we're in a culture of you've got to know and you've got to be able to be articulate about what you know. Um, everything's based on knowledge. So if someone sounds, male, female, doesn't matter, if someone sounds like they're unsure about the sequence of things, it puts doubt into whether or not it actually happened or if they're fabricating. 
So what would you say is an ideal time to interview someone then? Oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, it, it and this is, the, this is the challenge, right? If you're going to bring charges against somebody, it's got to be done quickly. It can't wait for the years of trauma treatment for it to all surface. Right. Because first of all, we don't, we don't know that the memories ever surface in any kind of logical order. In fact, I think we know that it doesn't. And this is one of the things that, you know, my, my patients, male and female, feel really relieved to find out is that you don't have to keep trying to make sense out of this. Right. Um, you can let it go, leave it for a while, and see what happens. You may not remember everything, and given I'm on the outside, I'm not going to know what you don't remember, but things are not going to make sense for a while. Well, it's comparable, I guess, to... Uh... Or, or a comparison would be um, when you when you have three different people were, uh, witness a crime of some sort. Exactly. You have three different uh, responses to what the person looked like, to what they were wearing, to to the actions themselves. Yeah. So, if yeah. you're the if you're the traumatized person, um, it'll, well, it it makes it that much foggy. more difficult. Yeah, you're looking through foggy glasses, right? So, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind when all of this stuff is going through with the class action suit and the, the sexual trauma stuff and off honor and all of this is that um, we can't, we need to step back and not doubt what's being said, but give it uh, a level of credibility we're not used to giving. Don't you think right? there should be some doubt involved? Well, I don't know that I think about it in terms of doubt. I think I... I Think about it in terms of, of what is most useful for the person. Yes, there has to be some discerning process. And again, I'm not an investigator, so I'm, I'm, I'm well out of my league on that one. Mm-hmm. But there has to be some discerning process to prevent or to, in, to inquire into um, allegations that are simply not, could not have been possible, you know. Um, the person who's being accused was in, you know, in a different continent or on a different continent or in a different city at the time that all of this was supposed to happen. Right. I think there's some objective stuff you can do around that. You mentioned you mentioned Op Honor. Did you happen to see the uh, um, General Vance's accuser interviewed? No, I didn't. Oh, that's too bad. I, we, I should have given you a heads up on that one. Um, because when you, when you listen to her at the time when she first got involved with... Uh, now General Vance, mm-hmm. um, there seems like there was a uh, consensual relationship, regardless of the uh, of the rank difference. Um, yeah. But she she was, I believe, uh, a major a, a military police officer, and uh, she 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 just came across more as a woman scorned than than someone who was truly um, making a complaint about sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, how is it that a woman that well educated and that knowledgeable would would not know that she could she could come out and uh, you know bring these allegations forward outside of her own chain of command? Because from my take of the uh, of listening to it, she yeah. she claimed that um, she didn't she needed to permission to speak out about it. So I I, I just didn't get that, and it didn't sound um, really plausible to me. And uh, to a couple other women who have also watched the uh, the video or the interview, so any thoughts on that little bit of information I've given you? 
Yeah, I haven't watched the video, so I, I'm not going to respond to to her particular situation um, because that would be unfair. Right. Um, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that there is no clear defining line between someone feeling like they've they are in a relationship that has potential to grow and to suddenly recognize that the relationship is actually um, uh, opportunistic right. um, you know on the part of one of the one of the partners. And I'm not strictly relating uh, again, most of the cases that we hear are about, male assaulters, you know, male sexual harassers, um, and rarely female. Um, I want to be careful here to say that we, we need to open up the, the, you know, we first need to deal with that because it's such a huge widespread issue. Um, we need to look at power dynamics. We, look, we need to look at things like not just power dynamics in terms of rank, but power dynamics in terms of, of gender, right? We need to look at um, whether or not there was an, an honest and innocent and somewhat perhaps naive assumption that a relationship like that, like any office romance, um, could have a positive outcome. Right. Most of the time it doesn't. Um, you know, we need to look at so many factors that doesn't start right out with, well, what did she expect? Right. Right. So we need to ask, well, what did both of them expect? Not just her, but what did both of them expect? What did he expect? And who should have held the reins on this? Who should have hauled it back and said, well, wait a minute. This, this is um, a violation of our official relationship. You know, the rules of the official relationship, whether you're in the military, whether you're, uh, you know, a CEO, in, whether you're, you know, Andrew Cuomo, in, you know, governor of New York, it doesn't matter. There are limits. Yeah, and I, within the military, I mean, the power balance is mostly uh, males over dominating females exactly. in sheer, exactly, sheer right? numbers. Um, you know, they're... they're Infatuations happen. We're human. You know, we see people who we feel like we resonate with, who we feel they get us, they, we feel like they're, you know, we're going to be safe with them, um, and that's not gender-specific. Uh, and then we trust that. But, you know, and that's really also where the frontal lobe goes online and kind of goes, well, let's look at the logic of this. You know, where do you really think this is going to go? Is she really going to leave her husband? Is, is he really going to leave his wife? Is he going to risk his rank and structure? You know, is she going to risk her rank and structure? Um, you know, we have to ask these questions of ourselves. Um, but it's really difficult to be logical when you're in the throes of thinking that um, someone cares about you. Well, it's still, I got it. I signed the dotted line in 1989 and, uh, when I got to my first posting in 1990 to uh, Petawawa, the um, the we had guys who were like corporals, the mass corporals who were dating nurses. Um, we yeah. had sergeants dating privates. Yeah, and it was there was there was still a taboo about it at that time. It wasn't it wasn't a huge career wrecker by any means, mm-hmm. but there was still a taboo. But over that very short period of time, the taboo seems to have been broken away or has been eroded, I guess, because yeah. these relationships were allowed to, to build. And uh, 
go on. So I think in in some way or form, we brought it on ourselves by not, uh, you know, cracking down on these rank um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I trust you. I trust your observation of that. You would have seen, you know, some of the psychological fallout of that yourself. You know, um, in terms of, of the people that you treated and uh, in, in conversations with them. Right. Um, I think we. I, I hate to agree with you, but I think you're on on, on an interesting track. Which I hate agreeing with you, Steve. <laughs> um, but you know, I think that's a really good point, which is that a lot of the the, the boundaries um, have slipped over the years. You know, we've gone from the hippie free for all to the you know the the new age. You know, um, it, nothing matters as long as we all get to nirvana, right? Right. Um, you know, we see that in Buddhism. We see that you know um, when we look at all the sexual assault. Um, stories that are coming out in Buddhism, for example, you know, decades, decades of, of teachers, uh, Buddhist teachers, you know, sexually assaulting their female students and telling them it was all for their own good, that they would, you know, this was how you achieved enlightenment. Well, and, to bring up know, Frank for a moment, um, when I went on that re- retreat with, uh, the silent retreat with Frank, and uh, you're probably aware of this now, but the guy that was in charge of that um, um yeah, re- he, yeah. He 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 was removed because of of just that sort of thing. He was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he had an affair with one of uh, with one of the uh, members who was attending. It was devastating for the community. Right. It should be right as it should be. As and it seems to be making a similar. Well, it's it's caused ripples within the military community here now because yeah. of all the high level um, um, yeah. members being accused of it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just as, a, again, a quick aside following up on the Zen, that, you know, there was a Zen master out in, out in the West Coast who for 40 years abused his students. And um, I don't know if he's still alive. I think he's 108 if he's still alive or whatever. But well into his 90s. And, you know, we really had to come to terms in, in the Buddhist community about how vulnerable we are as people, particularly as women, who desperately want to belong and want to believe that someone deeply cares for us. Because again, um, even... But also don't have that discernment to kind of go, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm really not special the way this person is seeing, telling me that I am, you know, because this doesn't feel right. And I think as women, we have to start trusting that sense of this does not feel right. Um, no matter how desperately I want that connection, this does not feel right. Well, it's part of your flight or flight um, response. I mean, if yeah. if you sense something's wrong, I mean, it, it, it's a very, it goes to our primitive self. I mean, if you sense something is wrong, you know, you got to believe those senses or you're going to become saber-tooth uh, lunch. Add, add to that, it's not just fight or flight, it is also submit. When you believe you have no other option that's going to keep you safe, you submit. Yeah, I never thought of that. Um, I just think fight or flight right away. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, submit is a huge thing. Um, one one form that a, a while ago people were talking about was the tend and befriend, and it was assigned primarily to women, and I don't believe it's, it's primarily female. Um, 
But, you know, can and befriend is a way of soothing the other person's aggression. And it's very maternalistic and, 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 uh, and so on and so forth. Um, we've shifted that now to look at it as submit because uh, submit is, is far more, speaks far more to the sense of danger that you feel mm-hmm. that if you don't go along with it, you have no, you know, that there is going to be far more damage than if you go along with it. Well, you look at, look at the uh, treatment of the Jews during uh, World War II. Yeah. The question was, why did so many of them not fight? And many, many of them did, but uh, yeah. because it was submit. If we submit, we go along quietly. We'll survive. They're not harming us um, because we're we're not fighting them. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in my own family, I mean, a portion of my family was in a in a Japanese um, civilian um, civilian camp when the Japanese invaded Burma. And my parents, uh, my dad was uh, fought in the Burmese army, and um, and you know my mom, who looks very Western, uh, you know lots of Irish blood in her, mm-hmm. uh, was left alone at home. And there's a story she she tells, and I think in many ways it's a very beautiful story. And uh, but the the um, uh, one day she turned around and there was this Japanese soldier standing in her living room, and she had my brother was was an infant at the time. And he came in and he sat down and he started talking to her. And, of course, she couldn't do anything but to sit down. And she had heard, she had also seen lots of stories about and seen a lot of incidents where the Japanese soldiers would just pick women off the street and rape them, right, in front. And she would, she'd witnessed all Or bayonet children. Yeah, bayonet children, bayonet pregnant women, things like that. Yeah. Um, it was very horrific. So, I mean, she felt there was nothing she could do but to sit down and, and this man sat down and he started talking about his family back in Japan and how he missed them. And, it's, you know, and he said, you know, looked at my brother and, and he, he said, how old is the baby? And it was sort of broken English kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and she was really terrified he was going to kill both of them. And he had his, his rifle and his bayonet and stuff. And, um, and, and he said, well, do you have food for the baby? And, of course, they didn't. And so, anyway, so he walked away. She asked him. What, I think the next visit she asked, he, he came a few times while my dad was away, and um, he um, he said his name was was um, banana was Monkey because he loved bananas. So, so she called him Monkey, and uh, he um, he he was so the next time he came, he brought bananas and he brought milk for my brother, and this this visit became. You know, for her, as she said, it became uh, a terrifying thing, even though she knew eventually that he wasn't going to hurt her, but she just didn't know when he was going to turn. Right. He was going to turn. And there was nothing she could do but to submit. I mean, he didn't sexually assault her or anything, but it was terrifying. I can't imagine what she would have gone through, you know. Um, And she did what survival meant to do. She befriended him. She tended to his emotional you know, need to talk about his family. And uh, and then he would leave, you know, 15, 20 minutes later or whatever. And he'd always come back with food. Um, but for her, it was like just waiting for that moment when he was going to rape her. Yeah. Even though it never happened, she, even when she was talking to me about it and telling me the story, you could see her shaking because, you know, she was in her 60s or 70s at this point. But, you, you know, she'd be shaking because the memory was so powerful of having to keep yourself under control and and not do anything 
that might trigger something that you can't protect yourself against. Now, to tie that back into the original conversation about um, women being uh, sexually assaulted yeah, within the military, do you think that that submission is a large part of... of uh, I wouldn't say a large part, but I think it's all about trying to sort out how, how much, uh, how large the danger is and what the danger really means. Um, and, you know, again, to, to preface that, we all go into a relationship, I think every one of us, hoping that it will be the kind of sustaining relationship that we feel we, we need. All of us, male, female, everybody. What I think we need to start paying attention to when we speak to women who, who, who um, file complaints about sexual harassment and sexual assault is to understand that we're dealing with a very different psychology that makes us more vulnerable and makes it hard for us to extract ourselves from a situation because the instant response is, well, you asked for it. Yeah, and and that whole that hasn't disappeared yet. You know, you've asked for it. Um, why were you dressed like that? Um, yeah. Why were you out that hour of the night? Whatever. Yeah. It, we still, in in many circumstances, are victim blaming. I, I think that that's that's changing. Um, Not fast enough, <laughs> especially if you're a woman. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, because it's embedded in all of our conversations. As you were saying that, I'm remembering my dad when I called to say that you know my marriage had broken up, and uh, in the, my first marriage, not not this one with the crazy guru that I'm with. Um, <laughs> and you need to stop inspiring him. Um, <laughs> he's a, he's he's an inspiration himself. <laughs> I, I think he's almost in, attained enlightenment. He's gone off for a bike ride. Um, but, you know, when my first marriage broke up and I called my dad and I was trying to read my, my parents, I was trying to reassure them to say, you know, I'm, this wasn't going to work out. I mean, we were two stupid kids and so this was not going to work out. And I said, you know, dad, I mean, you know, I knew when I got into it that this was a risky marriage. And his response was, well, why the hell did you get into it? <laughs> that, hey. that, see, that sounds like a fair question on the surface. Hey. <laughs> I got into it because by the time I actually realized it, I was walking down the aisle and um, I was already 20 minutes late and I didn't have the guts to turn around and run out. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I'm, I've been married for a long time too, but I, I remember that, that why am I doing this moment? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it sounds really trite, but that's the mentality, right? As a woman, talk about permission. I didn't feel I had the permission to say, I've made a mistake. This relationship is not for me. Well, I but my parents' perspective and my friends' perspective are, but you're in charge of the emotional management. Well, you came in, came in at, as, first of all, as an immigrant. How old were you when you uh, came to Canada? I'm sorry, repeat that again. I said you, you came into it with the, the view of an immigrant as well. So how old, how old were you when you came to Canada? I was 11. Really? So... so yep. You you were coming from one culture to another. The yeah. I can only imagine the clash that must have been. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm exploring some of that right now, um, just in terms of, oh, you're going to hate me for saying this, you know, um, what we now call whiteness. Right. And, um, and you have to remember, my parents 
uh, were on that fringe between the, you know, Burmese um, uh, Burmese rulers and and the British imperialists, right? And so they grew up under British colonialism and British imperialism and Christian imperialism. I came as an aftermath, in the aftermath of all of that, um, where my parents were able to, because the British left Burma, my, there were huge gaps in administration. So my parents were able to rise in the government mm-hmm. and they were, my father was fairly high up in the government and um, we lived a very privileged and, and um, um, uh, wealthy lifestyle. And when the, when the coup happened, when the junta came in in 63, 62, um, all of that crashed. And so we had to get out. So I'm just starting to understand that my mentality is very much of that arrogant little shit who grew up with servants. And my dad had one of the three Triumph Mayfairs in the world. One of the what, sorry? Triumph Mayfairs. It's a, it's a sports car. Okay. Oh, Triumph. Yeah, Triumph. Okay. And, um, you know, so I mean, I grew up in this very kind of variegated kind of lifestyle where you had servants, you know, people, you know, took care of you hand and feet and, you know, all of that. And then, boom, I come back, I come to Canada. And, of course, my languaging is also picked up from that, you know, British um, public school arrogance kind of tone, right? And, I'm only just, you're going to love this. I'm only just starting to figure out why people don't like me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine people not liking you. People don't like me because sometimes the way I speak and the way I approach things um, can be very um, uh, public school upper crust, which I'm not. So, you know, people assume that, you know. But you have that way of speaking. You know, exactly. When, That's when you point. say which I'm not, it, the the upper crust um, ponce comes out. Exactly, and I didn't even begin to notice this until I started reading some of the books um, and starting to get back into things like Women of the Raj and things like that, right? And so, I mean, when I came to Canada, I couldn't figure out why I didn't fit in. And, and I'm sorry to say, like, 55 years later, 50-some-odd years later, I'm only just figuring out why, why I don't fit in. Um, I fit in a little better now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really hard to understand your own cultural training uh, when you're in the middle of it. So, you know, you add the gender issue on top, you know, you add the cultural issue on top of the gender issue on top of societal issues and societal expectations, well, to bring you back from that water, that rabbit hole for a minute, um, you you faced the the difficulty of of I'd imagine Burma was a, still a very much patriarchal society. Yeah. Um, then you moved to to Canada at the age of eleven years old, having had all that experience behind you, um, and then you you come to to a country where women are just starting to. Well, they've been at it for a while, but they're just starting to come to the fore as in being able to stand up for themselves to get, you know, break through that glass ceiling or starting to break through the glass ceiling. Yeah. And that that must have been quite a clash as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, remember, this is 65. So, you know, we were into the hippie years, right, which I never understood. Um, and, uh, you know, so, 
Yeah, glass ceiling wasn't even an issue then. I mean, I was expected to take typing in school and become a secretary, right? Yeah, I remember my aunt, we were both the same age, and she took shorthand because that was what she was going to do, was be a secretary. Yeah, I mean, my my mom taught me shorthand, you know, um, I can't remember the two different kinds, but, you know, but when I went into, when I went to college, when I went to university, I was one of five women in chemistry. There was only one woman, one uh, friend of mine in in physics. Um, When I graduated, there were only five of us who graduated in chemistry. Right. Hmm. Um, I went on to Queens, and I was one. I was the first female to get the degree in chemistry, subspecialty in chemistry that had come out like three years before. And no engineers yet. No female engineers. I don't imagine. Well, you know, very few, very few. So we now we're talking seventy six, right? Seventy eight, and that's when I came to Ottawa in seventy eight. And when I walk, the first day I walked into the chem lab in the in the in Parks Canada, in the federal government, um, the um, the lab assistant looked at me and said, "Oh, great! Finally, all the glassware will get washed, <laughs> right?" And uh, you know, and so I mean, it just never stopped, right? Um, uh, the number of times you know, I'd go and play racquetball with the guys, and it would the, ra- the racquetball was just an excuse for a touchy feely session where they take me up against the wall and, and grab my breasts, right? Yeah. What what's your favorite overcoming sexism moment? Do you have one that you can think of? What do I think it overcomes sexism? Yeah, no, no. Involving you personally, did you have an episode where some guy was just being a dickhead? Um, you know, maybe it was a sexual comment or sexual harassment of some sort that you had to come back for. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I never did. Um. I think there were, uh, and I might be hiding behind a specialty group, I think there were a group of women that I hung out with who adopted the same approach, who probably were as much perpetrators as as the men we were with. Mm -hmm. Um, We took on that cloak because it was safer, right? So we made the same types of comments. We we said the same things. I look back now with tremendous shame at that, but also trying to be understanding that, um, you know, I was in my 20s. I mean, at the time of, of egalitarianism, you know, where women and men were equal, many of us took on the aggression of men um, because it was tasty. I mean, it was, it was new. It was very different to be able to, you know, say fuck off to somebody, you know, um, where before, my God, you never said that sort of thing. A uh, woman, a lady certainly would not have. Yeah, yeah. How times have changed. Yeah, and and, I mean, I think now we're we're coming back to saying, well, I don't have to be um, uh, male-sized in order to feel my own power, right? I can feel my own power, um, which is the same but different, right, from from the kind of power that men wield. Um, But I think we all go through this transition of identifying with the aggressor. and. Just to, just to back things up a little bit, the current situation within the military with more and more women coming forth with uh, uh, with sexual assault especially, um, I, I think personally what needs to happen, these things can't be in, investigated by the, by the military. I think they need to be investigated by an outside source um, before any real change will occur. What, what, what's your opinion? How, how do you 
how well, do you fix it? I think that's what it? they've been trying to do with the police forever. Um, I think it has to be a balance of the two. Um, you, you do have to have people who are um, who are aware of the culture within the military. Um, that's not to give it a pass. That's so that they can understand the systemic changes that need to be done. Because you can't just investigate case by case and go, oh, yeah, great, so we've done right by this one person. There has to be a systemic change, right? There has to be a systemic change in how we deal with everybody in the military, how we deal with the assaults, how we deal with release, how we deal with, with transitions, how we deal with, you know, with back um, and the support that they need. Um, all of that requires seeing people as fundamentally loyal but who are in a rough place. Um, and to see people who have violated the rules of that loyalty. Being loyal in the military, being loyal to your buddies and people around you, includes not sexually harassing them. That's part of the loyalty code. So, you know, we have to revision what it means to be loyal to each other uh, within the context of, of um, the military within a context of first responders, within a context of any organization. Well, your words very much remind me of uh, Zach and I, my son. We took a trip to India, as you know, and uh, we'd gone to a number of bars. And in these bars, as you're walking up the steps and on the walls are posters and writing, real men don't rape, real men don't yeah. assault. And I was thinking, why the hell, what, what, what kind of outfit do you need that sort of in-your-face reminder of? Like, how, how messed up is that? But that's easily relatable now to the military. You yeah. know, do we really need on the, on the, on the basic training uh, doorway you come through, real men don't rape, real men don't assault their subordinates, you know, things like that? You so, know, I think we need that. I mean, just as, you know, I, I have to go for um, a diversity training and um, I have to take courses in, you know, uh, inclusivity and, and you know, how to, how to ensure that I'm speaking appropriately to when I'm addressing people of color. Uh, and I kind of said my initial response was, whoa, whoa, can you look at who you're talking to here? I'm a um, brown person. But the reality is I do. I need those trainings. Um, and I've benefited from those trainings. I may not agree with some of it, but I've benefited from it. Um, I've been impressed by the sensitivity with which these things have been delivered. So, yeah, I think we need to go back and retool everything because the world itself, people come from this big, you know, pot out there where they haven't grown up with the kind of sensitivities and, and, respect um, that's expressed within the family culture. Some people have grown up very um, isolated because they've had to survive. You know, I, I know many, as you know, many people go into the military because it's a family. It's a family that they haven't had. But because it's a family they haven't had, they need to be taught what it means to be in a family that is healthy. Which which takes us right back around to the loop of um, OSI and um, institutional trauma. Yeah. The uh, where the hell was I going with that? Which 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 takes us right back to that. In that, um, oh shit, I lost my train of thought completely. 
<laughs> well, institutional trauma can have, I think, where, I, I know where, where you took me when you said that, when bringing it back to institutional trauma or sanctuary trauma, is that um, if I've grown up in a family that's dysfunctional where boundaries were not respected, and I continue to rise in where, and that's never been challenged in my head, or that's a very deeply um, uh, trained set of behaviors, then at some point when I'm in a power position, I'm not going to think twice about violating those boundaries. Because if I haven't come to terms with what I grew up in or understand what I grew up in, I'm not going to see that as a set of latent automatic behaviors that are going to express themselves somewhere along the line. Right. And where I was going to go when you said uh, you're introduced to your, your new family in the military, um, Often over the years, especially my last 10 in, where, where I was in more of a leadership role, the, uh, I would say that, yes, the military is your family until you go through those gates. And they're not there anymore. Yeah. At, least, at least the military isn't there. There's military friends and, and whatnot that's there for you as your family. But you need to be able to transition into something else. Yeah. And, you, and you, can't, you can't depend on the green machine because it's not there. And yeah. it will uh, screw you over. Maybe not intentionally, but, you know, you have to put in your third application for, you know, benefits that you think you're owed. Um, and they'll fight you tooth and nail on it. So, yeah, you'll, I you'll mean, definitely, definitely suffer institutional trauma. From the veteran's perspective, yes. Um, and I think both sides, you know, we, we all have to look at that system and, and that, and I mean, I think part of it too is, is modulating our expectations, right? While it may be very appropriate that we would want full compensation for risking our lives, for committing, you know, to protecting the country and, and, you know, for the decades that people have been in, uh, or even the few years that they've been in, um, you know, at some point we have to recognize that we're dealing with a political issue that is deeply become deeply personal. There isn't the political will to support veterans. No, there isn't. I mean, as if you listen to the profanity laced conversation I had with our Royce, <laughs> my mom listened to that one and she thought that was quite spicy. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, it was. Um, but as I, as I said with that, oh, damn, I lost my train of thought again. Well, you were cutting out, so I can't help you with that one. Well, I guess what we'll do, um, when I guess what we'll do is we'll give you the last word on how to wrap this up. We've come up on an hour, and uh, I think you were worried we weren't going to have an hour, hour to cover. So, uh I think we definitely we could we could do another hour easily. We could we could, but I'm getting hungry. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, and what's really standing out for me is, um, you know, for both people to recognize that first of all, you know, sexual trauma, institutional trauma is not a set of clearly defined memories that people can go and get. It's not, there's nothing, there are, no, there are no screenshots that we can get of our lives that say, oh yeah, look, this really happened. 
I think we as listeners have to have a level of trust, um, but not blind trust, right? Uh, where it says, oh, you know, all of this is true. But we have to have a level of trust that there is something very distressing that happened uh, to people who have experienced sanctuary trauma, institutional trauma, sexual harassment, sexual trauma. Um, just as we have trust that when someone says, you know, I went out on deployment, this happened, this happened, and this happened, and I've not been the same since. We trust that even though we weren't there. Mm-hmm. We trust when military personnel come back in very distressed and broken states, and they say, you know, I don't know what happened. I don't remember. One moment I was here, the next moment I was, you know, 20 feet away, and all hell had broken loose. We trust that. We have to give the same level of trust to people who say, I'm just trying to remember there was this incident and this incident and this incident. With the female members that I work with with uh, who've gone through sexual harassment and sexual trauma, um, sexual assault trauma, it's a jigsaw piece that's where there's always going to be pieces missing, but I get the sense of the jigsaw. I can look at the puzzle and go, here, look, I think this is what's happening. And I think that's an excellent tie-in to... Uh to uh, PTSD, where yeah. where we, we have no trouble believing the, um, well, most of us don't have any trouble breathing the, the person who's telling us yeah. about the PTSD. Why uh, why aren't we extending that same um, courtesy, if you will, to someone com- um, speaking of a different trauma? And remember, trauma. even with PTSD, that, yeah, I mean, are there people who malinger? Of course there are. Oh, yeah. But it's not that they're bad people, it's that they don't feel like they have any other choice, and we have to give them other choices with which to ask for what they need. Uh, I used to do a lot of work with with lawyers uh, where people were being assessed for whether or not they were malingering after a motor vehicle accident. And, you know, malingering is just another way of saying, I feel helpless and you're not hearing me. Right. are they, are they as badly injured? I don't know. That's not my job to figure out. That's a physiatrist's job to figure out. But from a psychological perspective, people are going to, I mean, often women will be will be told, you know, uh, they're just histrionic, they're hysterical, you know, who wants to listen to them? They go on and on and on. Well, maybe they go on and on and on because you're not hearing them the first time or the second time or the 10th time or the 200th time. Or you're just not listening, period. Exactly. So I think that's that's where we need to start to retool ourselves, to go back and retrain ourselves to go, hold on a sec. You know, if this was my best friend coming to me, I would believe them, or I would at least support them even if I didn't believe them. So do you think putting women into top uh, top leadership positions like the CDS, vice CDS, all of those upper echelon societies is going to fix things? You know, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yes, do I think it is. women can run the world? Of course I do. Um, do I think we do it any better? I don't know. I really don't. It depends on the individual. It depends on how the person is willing to navigate through several minefields to run an organization like the military or the police or anything else. There are women who can. Um, do we need a whole raft of women up there? No, I think that would be disrespectful to men. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I kind of had to make peace with you, buddy. <laughs> and I can't believe I scared you when we first met. You mm. are still terrifying. <laughs> the only reason I try to hug you is to keep you close so you don't do something like ice <laughs> me or something. I quite enjoyed being the black-hatted guy uh, while I was wearing uniform. 
<laughs> that you know that that poor person. We were role playing, and you took someone down, and I will. I I should have smacked you for that one. <laughs> I vaguely remember something about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you're awesome, Steve. I love you to death. All right. Well, do you have any last words before we wrap this up? I love you to death. I, I think love what you you're as doing well. Is amazing, and I want—I I really want everyone listening to this to know that you know there is a tiny light at the end of the tunnel. You got to find the right shrink. You got to find someone who's just as um, off the wall as as you are, and who who understands your language. Well, thanks, um, I, and I hope your career doesn't take a uh, a dive because you've appeared on such a lowbrow um, pod as mine. Because I what? You're not a lowbrow, whatever. That's all I heard. <laughs> I said, I hope your career doesn't take a uh, dive because you've appeared on my lowbrow show. Don't you don't you downplay it. It is it's a powerful show. I've sent a lot of my clients to it and they love it. Um, <laughs> it the thing uh, that I do want to say is that my career is is on a dive anyway because I'm cutting back to three I've cut back to three days a week, I might cut back to two. Well, it's your gain, but uh, our loss. Yeah, I don't know. I'll probably keep doing this for the rest of my life. But thank you, my love. You have been absolutely amazing. Keep doing this. Okay, well, you hang on, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk as soon as I sign off here. Okay. So uh, thanks again, Lynette, for uh, uh, putting putting uh, putting in an hour with uh, with me, and hopefully it uh, it benefits some of the people listening to it. Um. Thanks to uh, all of you who are tuning into Rock is Bacchus. It's much appreciated. And uh, if you feel free to send me any uh, hate mail you have, any comments, to stevecopang at gmail.com. That's Sierra, Tango, Echo, Victor, Echo, Charlie, Kilo, Oscar, Papa, Papa, Alpha, November, Golf, at gmail.com. Be good to each other because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>